This is the Kinfolk Project, a resource for the African American genealogy search. The following podcast is designed to help you with your family history quest, offering solutions to your inquiries, true and tried guidelines to shaping your tree, and answers from experts. The host, Bernie Moody's passion for genealogy started as a child, asking questions of his parents and grandparents. He has been researching earnestly since 1990 and is considered an expert in African-American genealogy by many of his peers. Now, host of the Kinfolk Project podcast, Bernie Moody. With us on this episode is George Palmer, tour guide for the California State Railroad Museum. As you know, this focus of our podcast are breaking the brick wall, and African-Americans had a lot to do, a lot of movement and the railroads in this country, and George Palmer is going to help us explain. How are you today, sir? I'm doing very well, thank you. So tell us, tell us, just jump right into it. Tell us about the African-American and railroads and technology. Well, the nation first transcontinental railroad, the western end of the building of the railroad, the workers was mainly Chinese. And from... Uh, running from Sacramento to uh, meet the Union Pacific coming out of Omaha, Nebraska. The workers for the Union Pacific headed west from Omaha, Nebraska was Native Americans, African Americans, Latinos, Japanese, and European immigrants. But for the western end, it was mainly the Chinese. And the railroad uh, finally uh, met in... um, Promontory, Utah, on um, Monday, May the 10th, 1869. Although it was scheduled to meet on Saturday, May the 8th, the reason it didn't is because of uh, Dr. Thomas Arant, head of the Union Pacific uh, Railroad, uh, the building of the railroad, he was involved in a political scandal. Oh, okay. And he hadn't paid his workers, so they hijacked the train until money arrived, and then they held a celebration on Monday instead of Saturday. And the contribution, um, one of the things that we uh, talk about, the early building across country of traveling, you had to change uh, trains many times, but for the Pullman car, Pullman started hiring African Americans around 1865. He went south and started hiring African Americans who had been um, uh, working in the slave owner's home. These are the type of people that he needed for his uh, program and for the service. So he would ship them across country. And he didn't originally pay them in his salary at first. They worked for tips. And that didn't come about until later on when they had one of the worst labor disasters striking this country in 1894 when the um, railroad uh, went on strike because of uh, Pullman uh, not uh, paying his uh, workers uh, what was due them, uh, the white workers, really. In 1894, they were on the strike with uh, Eugene Debs. It was soon so later on. But at this time, Pullman had not really started paying African Americans. They had either worked... Uh, 400 miles, or I can't remember the days before they received any kind of pay at that time. But afterwards, when Pullman was uh, passed away in 1896, Robert 
Todd Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's son, became president of the Pullman Corporation. He still not allow African Americans to have a representative either. He stayed uh, president of the Pullman Corporation until around 1911. Then he became chairman of the board. And in 1922, a porter by the name of Benjamin E. Mays was working as a porter. He was the only African-American who had a college degree at the time. They ended up fine, uh Mays because he almost got the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porter Union started, so they fired him. Mays went on to complete his education and became president of Mohouse College when Martin Luther King graduated there in 1948. What the Pullman Porters did next, they went outside and hired A. Philip Randolph. Randolph was never a poor. He was an educator and organizer. And the Railroad Safety Act of 1893 and 1925 did not include the porters, all other railroad people, but not the porters. So when Randolph made the attempt to get uh, the poor is included. He went to President Calvin Coolidge in 1928. He was turned down. But in 1933, when Roosevelt became president, he issued an executive order saying that it included all of the poor as well as the railroad workers. The Portland Corporation took exception to it and appealed it to the U.S. Supreme Court March excuse me, August 1937, the U.S. Supreme Court told the Pullman Corporation it was the law of the land and the Brotherhood of Sleeping Corporation Union was born. And A. Philip Randolph stayed head of the organization, I think, until the 1970s or 80s, I can't remember which, but he also, in 1941, A. Philip Randolph went to President the uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt requesting that the segregation should be lifted for soldiers. Roosevelt wouldn't hear of it, but he did issue an order outlawing uh, discrimination in the military industry. But in 1948, A. Philip Randolph went to see President Truman, and that's when he issued the executive order that uh, segregation will end in the military. But most of all, when Rosa Park refused to give up her seat in Montgomery, Alabama on December the 1st, 1955, it was E.D. Nixon, one of uh, A. Philip Randolph's protégés that started that system and told that young minister, Martin Luther King, we expect for you to support us at our church tonight, Reverend, and we know the rest of the story on Martin Luther King. But A. Philip Randolph was a brilliant man, he was partially responsible for organizing the march on Washington, D.C. on yes, I was hoping August you get 20th, there. Yes. 1963. He was a very bright man. Amen. And we are grateful for him. Now, the technology uh, for African Americans, the bump and hookup, there was two systems, the pin and the link. The pin and the link system of hooking up trains came into being from Eli Janey around 1872. But the bump and hookup, according to Professor Kornweibel out of University of California, San Diego, it came from an ex-slave named Jackson Beard out of Alabama, September 1897. He got $50,000 for that. 
And the refrigeration system, when uh, the first refrigeration system in uh, railroad cars around 1850, that was back in uh, the East Coast. But for mechanical, um, let me back up a minute. Roseville, California, 20 miles east of uh, Sacramento, California, was the largest ice-making plant in the United States until around, from 1922 till around 1960s. That's where they made ice for the refrigeration cars on trains. Mechanical ice-making came into being around 1938 from Frederick M. Jones, an African-American who holds six one patents in cooling to his name. He's also the only African-American who was a consultant to the United States Department of Defense on cooling. A very bright man. And um, there, there are a few others uh, out of that 61, 41 of them was for cooling. He was a, a you might as well say an unusual bright man. Sounds like and it. And last but not least, when a lot of the kids, uh, people come from the Bay Area to Sacramento to visit the California State Railroad Museum, often ask them, do they ride BART? That's the subway system. And I often ask them, where does BART get the power to move? Subways get the power to move. It's that third rail. That third rail came from the minds of an African-American named Granville T. Woods in 1897. He sold it to General Electric in 1902. Usually, every year, General Electric always sends out some advertisement about the patents they bought from him in February. Granville T. Wood holds 45 electrical patents to his name. He was like a someplace in Ohio. And we are often uh, overlooked on the contributions that African Americans have uh made to this country. And one of the other things, as a tour guide at the California State Railroad Museum, I often ask a lot of the folks, the scandal in building this railroad, when President Lincoln signed the Pacific Railroad Act on July the 1st, 1862, given so much money for every mile of track laid and so much for on flatland as well as so much made in the basin as well as across the mountain. It's a fabulous uh, piece of history, but also the scandal that was involved in this building, this railroad went all the way to the White House on the Grant administration, Grant Vice President Skyler Koufax. Uh, we have a city east of Sacramento named for him, even though he was a politician out of Indiana. He went on to become Grant Vice President, dragging the Grant administration into it. He was deeply involved along with Dr. Thomas Durant. But there were also 11 uh, politicians involved in this scandal. And the second administration involved in the scandal was uh, President Garfield. Garfield is the 20th president of the United States, often asked, a lot of the kids, when they come up, Garfield is the 20th president of the United States. What does he and President Barack Obama have in common? Most people don't realize the common they have is that Garfield 
was the first candidate to be sitting in Congress and go directly to the White House. Since 1880, many have tried it, but only three others have achieved that goal. The second one to do it was Warren Hardy. Warren Hardy was elected to Congress from Ohio in 1914. 1921, while sitting as a senator, he was elected the 29th president of the United States. John Kennedy was elected to Congress in 1946, 1953 Senator Kennedy, 1960 the 35th President of the United States, and Barack Obama became only the fourth candidate to be sitting in Congress and go directly to the White House. Of that four, I never talked about the history of it until January 20, 2017. Of that four, Barack Obama is the only one to serve not one term, but two terms. Garfield was the first one to be sitting in Congress and go directly to the White House in 1880. But six months later, he was assassinated. Warren Hardy was elected in 1921. Two years later, he died at the Sheraton Palace Hotel in San Francisco. John Kennedy was elected in 1960. Two years later, he was assassinated. So you see, the odds of going directly from the United States Congress to the White House are not good at all. all. This is the Kinfolk Project podcast with George Palmer. And, sir, I want to thank you so much for being a part of of our broadcast. How can people contact you? Mr. Palmer, I assume the museum is not open during this shelter-in-place that we're experiencing right now. That is correct. The museum is closed at this time. Also, one of the other things about the California State Railroad Museum is that the the California Zephyr, the Amtrak that runs from San Francisco and Oakland to Chicago, when that train arrives in Sacramento at 1109 daily mm-hmm. on its way to Chicago, the museum put two docents on board that train every morning to give the passengers a living history of the building of this nation's first transcontinental railroad. We narrate from Sacramento to Reno, Nevada, get off in Reno, spend the night, then board the westbound train the next morning to give the passengers out of Chicago the same information. It's an outreach program between Amtrak and the California State Railroad Museum. Crossing the Sierra Nevada mountains is considered to be one of the most scenic railroad routes in this country. That's what I hear. And yes. by the way, I have, as of last August, I have hiked the Sierras nine times. Oh, man. Okay. I had never hiked the Sierras before I became a volunteer at the Railroad Museum. Wow. I've been a volunteer there for 19 years. Well, Mr. Palmer, we thank you. And for our researchers, uh, the railroads have a lot of history, a lot of records we can we can go through to try and continue to break that brick wall. Thank you so much for being a part of our broadcast. My pleasure, and thank you. And we hope to have, when the, rail, the museum does open again, and by the way, the programs uh, are narrated on Amtrak, that is closed too. So hopefully when this virus is over, a lot of folks will come and visit the Railroad Museum and see the contributions that African Americans have made to the building of this country. Once again, thank you so much, sir. My pleasure. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank and you, sir. I look sir. forward to seeing you at the museum yes. sometime. All right.
Thanks to our producer, Brian Sapolin. Join us again for the next episode of the Kinfolk Project podcast. We're available on platforms such as Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Cast, and Radio Public. Thanks again. This has been the Kinfolk Project podcast with family historian Bernie Moody. If you have questions concerning your family search, you can email Bernie at moodybernie at yahoo.com and you can also follow him on Instagram at the Kinfolk Project and on Twitter, Kinfolk Dude. Thank you, and join us again for the next episode of the Kinfolk Project podcast. 